Good evening. My name is Maureen Freely. Uh, welcome to Writers at Warwick. It's a very, very, very great pleasure to welcome back uh, Blake Morrison this evening. Blake and I met, I, I've calculated, uh, 22 years ago. And uh, the person who introduced us was our agent, Pat Kavanaugh. And uh, she passed away last week. And um, we dedicate this reading to her. Um, without Pat, I would have never known Blake. I would never had, uh, be, I wouldn't be here. Um, nothing um, would have happened. I owe uh, my whole writing life to her, and I suppose you would mm. might say the same. Mm. Anyway, when I first met uh, Blake, he was the deputy literary editor mm -hmm. at The yeah. Observer, and I was terrified of him, even though he's only two years no old. No good reason to be. <laughs> and he was very well known as a poet in those days, uh, and, and best known for the Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper. And uh, before long, he became the literary editor of The Observer. And uh, after several years of working together, he moved on to The Independent on Sunday, and I was able to come along. Uh, and while he was at The Independent on Sunday, he took a leave, and during the leave wrote this amazing book, And When Did You Last See Your Father? Uh, which, of course, he followed up with another book, uh, Things My Mother Never Told Me. I always get the title of that no, wrong. That's, that's good, right. okay. <clears throat> uh, and another uh, extraordinarily wonderful nonfiction book, As If, it's about Jamie Vulture, mm -hmm. uh, the Jamie Vulture case. Uh, he then went on uh, to, uh, to write a, a novel about uh, the, the beginning of the print, the age of print, also very, very interesting. This is his... South of the River, uh, which has recently come out in paperback, is his second novel. And uh, he'll be reading from it today. When it's, 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 it feels, as you're reading it, like a 16th, like, sorry, I've been teaching too long, a 19th century novel. It's very, uh, it's a, you're, you can live in this novel and enjoy it, and you get to know the characters very, very well, and you're taking them over time. But it's also, uh, hugely discomforting at, at times that you don't ex expect. Uh, one of the great uh, surprises for me was that the, the character who is closest to me in, uh, in, in her way of life and so on ends up being quite horrible. I don't, can't forgive you that. Really? Uh, <laughs> so I'd like to know more about this, but we'll have a discussion. Uh, but it is one of those books in which you, you keep on saying, Yes, this is the world I live in. This is the England I live in. But I haven't read about it uh, in this way before. And of course, by the end, you think, well, I didn't, I, I hadn't planned to look at it quite this way. But it makes, it's a book that makes you think long, long after you've put it down. I'll, I'll pass over to you, Blake, um, so you can to read I'll a little bit from the novel. Okay. I, I, yeah. Please welcome Blake Morrison. Half a decade later, as she stood by a high window, ready to throw herself out, what Libby would remember of that day wasn't the dinner table conversation with her husband or the footage of Tony Blair waving to the crowds or even the interview with the man who would become her lover. It was the fox she saw at first light leaving its tracks across the dew-white grass. The fox was large, 
brassy and, despite a slight limp, horribly robust. She shivered as she watched from the bedroom window, a male probably, too big for a vixen, too big really for a fox. There were more of them every year, more and larger. They already had the run of the garden, digging up plants, shitting on the patio, stealing any item, toys, gloves, trainers, accidentally left out. If they catch us, will we be eaten, Mummy? Hannah and Rose, her daughters, sometimes asked. Don't be silly, she told them, without conviction. It wasn't rational to be afraid of foxes, but what was rational about foxes living in a city? Not just living in, but occupying, controlling, taking over. She shivered again, then banged on the window. The fox turned its head and stared back. Fuck you, lady. I'll do as I please. She banged again, to no effect. Then something caught its attention, and off it went, up and over the garden fence. A pigeon crew-crewed from the roof, soothing as cough medicine. But there were prints on Libby's small back lawn. Today was going to be difficult, and the fox seemed a bad omen. Um, well, that's the opening of this novel that Maureen has described, South of the River. Uh, and I should, I should say that although we, we are both in mourning for our agent, Pat Kavanagh, we didn't choose deliberately to wear black. We just, in, in unison, uh, I mean, but maybe that's slightly an expression of, of how we're feeling, having lost somebody who's so important to us. Um, I, I, I read that bit partly to... to explain that what began this novel, which I have heard called a state of the nation novel and a novel about the Britain we're living in and so on, uh, and which it's true, had, I had something of that ambition for it, but what began it was a fox. Um, I, I grew up in a small village in rural Yorkshire where there was fox hunting, uh, you know, there would be a meet of the the hounds every Boxing Day, uh, you know, and I had a little book of British mammals that identified them all, and I spent my whole childhood waiting to see a fox, and I had to move to London uh, in order to see foxes, and I now see them every single day of my life uh, in my South London back garden. I don't know how it is in Coventry or Warwick or elsewhere, but urban foxes seem to be a phenomenon of our time. And um, they fascinated me, I suppose, because, um, well, like Libby in that passage, um, it seems strange that uh, this creature of the wild should, should, be, should make its home opportunistically in a city, uh, that that's where you see foxes. Um, but also because I associated the fox so much with folk tales, fairy tales, with magic, with the stuff of legend and, uh, that I'd been brought up with as a child. Um, and somehow there's that magic, a sense of magic about this creature, however annoying they can be. It's, all, it's absolutely true about the, the trainers that get nicked if you happen to leave you, make the mistake of leaving your trainers out overnight or your gardening gloves. Um, that for me, they retain that sense of magic. And so what began this book was, 
was a fox. And when I, when I started fumbling around, because it was 10 years ago that I started to write it, um, I, I began to research, if you like, foxes, um, biologically, if you like, um, but also anthropologically. I, I began to collect fox tales. And I discovered that you know, we have this whole Western tradition of the fox. Um, the fox is cunning. Uh, the fox that outwits other creatures or man. Um, but you also have this, this Eastern tradition, this Chinese, Korean tradition of the fox, which is different. It's the fairy fox. It's the fox fairy and it's the vixen. And in, 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 in Eastern cultures, the, 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 um, the convention really is that the, the fox takes on, or the vixen takes on, a human form. Uh, you will have a shepherd that falls in love with a beautiful woman, marries this beautiful woman. They might start a family. Um, and then one day he will make the, the fatal mistake of saying, uh, strange smell around here, um, uh, something a bit acrid. And at that point, the, the disguise will be blown. The, the beautiful woman turns into a fox. Um, any children that have been born turn into cubs and they're gone. And this man is left in mourning for this beautiful thing that he's lost. Anyway, there are all sorts of different traditions around the changeling, the fox fairy, the fairy fox. And David Garnett, um, novelist, did use them in his novel, uh, I think from the 20s, called Lady into Fox. Um, and you'll find, if you read South of the River, some of this mythology creeping into that too. But there, I had all this stuff kicking around, but, yeah, I, and I had some characters. I had uh, Libby, who you heard from here, hardworking mother, uh, I had her less hard-working husband, who you might hear from a little bit in a moment, um, called Nat, um, would-be writer, uh, more usually um, teaching or not teaching, sitting at home thinking. Um, anyway, I had those two, and I had a character called Jack, who was, to me, the embodiment of the country and of an old England and who was not in London and who uh, embodied a different set of values. And I had these characters kicking around. I had the foxes, but I didn't have, I didn't have a place. I didn't have a, a, a setting. And I, I, I got the idea of, had the idea of um, <clears throat> setting the novel on a particular day or series of days. Um, Ian McEwen came along and wrote Saturday and slightly stole my thunder. But if you like, this is this this is Monday to Friday. It's 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 set on five days, uh, not just one. And I think the Guardian at the weekend was pointing out the number of novels that there's a name for it, isn't it? A novel that's set on a uh, covers the the events of one day. This covers the events. This novel of five days, but they're five days from five different years, and. I wasn't, <clears throat> I don't know how consciously I was searching for an iconic day to begin it, but I thought, well, what in our recent history has been the day that you say, can say to somebody, you know, do you remember what you were doing on such and such a day or such and such an evening? And, well, yes, 9-11, but to me that's an American phenomenon, and it's, and it's a, a sort of television phenomenon for most of us. Uh, no, the one that came to me 
to mind for me was the 1st of May, 1997. Do you remember what you were doing that day? Do you even remember what the day was? Yes, I see people nodding. It was, <clears throat> and it seems a piece of history now, doesn't it? The day that Tony Blair was elected in that landslide victory. 18 years of conservative rule had gone. Um, and I just had the idea that begin there, or rather begin next morning, begin with people waking up in the new dawn, this new country, this young go-ahead government um, after 18 years of sleaze and, uh, well, growing disenchantment, if you like. Uh, begin there in the new dawn and, and, and see how the characters are reacting to it. Now, that's the, for me, that's the key. This, this is not a, a tract. I mean, Maureen mentioned as if the book about the Bulger case. The, that book, I think, was polemical to some extent. It was trying to say something. Oh, the, uh, the Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper was trying to say something morally, politically, whatever. But this is a novel with characters in it. And to me, the key thing is how the characters are reacting to events, not... Not, not, not that the novelist is wanting to convert the reader to a particular point of view. And you get a range of, um, a range of reaction that first morning. Um, you've got Libby, who you, who you, who you heard from there. She's, uh, she's rather frantic. She's got an important meeting at work, but the two, her two daughters are sick. Can she leave them with Nat, but Nat can't be relied on to look after uh, small children? Oh, my God, what can she do? And he, meanwhile, crawls into bed about five in the morning, muttering about history. He's just been seeing history being made. You know, he's seen Portillo go and so on. And, and Libby's reaction is, um, you know, uh, stuff about sod history. When your children are ill, your hair's wet, you're stressed about work and you have a headache, history doesn't amount to a bean. I have more important things to think about than a change of government, she thought. More important, that is, to me. Um, then you've got Jack, uh, who I mentioned earlier, living in the countryside, um, trying to run a small, struggling business, making motor mowers. Once upon a time, this business used to make cars, and then it was sort of slightly downsized to motorbikes, and it's ended up slightly to his embarrassment being motor mowers. Not the most dignified thing, perhaps, to claim that your family business makes, but it's all, it's even making those and keeping it going is a struggle. And he, for him, that morning is significant because he's lost some big order and things are looking tougher than ever. But so he goes to the pub as is his want on the Friday lunchtime. Uh, and waits for one or two friends who, as is the tradition, meet him in the pub for an hour on a Friday lunchtime. Did you watch last night? Bruno, the landlord, asked, nodding at the television stationed above them. Till last month, there'd been a tank of tropical fish tank there. Sorry, there'd been a tank of tropical fish there. The telly was meant to bring in extra customers. Not for long, Jack said, glancing up. A reporter with a hand mic stood in Downing Street, then they cut to some earlier footage. Blair, triumphant, landslide victory, youngest prime minister this century, etc. Seeing which way the wind was blowing, Jack had been in bed before midnight. 
The one time he'd voted Labour was in 1959, and that was only to piss off the old man. Wilson, Foot, Kinnock, he trusted none of them. Only Callaghan had seemed half decent, but he was up against Thatcher. And Jack couldn't not vote for Thatcher. He'd once met her in a VIP tent at an agricultural fair. Wonderful woman, said what she thought, looked you in the eye, stood for what was best about England. Still, Thatcher had gone half bats by the end, and Jack had never warmed to Major. He'd voted Conservative yesterday because the local MP, Freddie Finch, had once bought one of his mowers. He'd voted Conservative yesterday because the Conservative Party was the natural party of small businesses. He'd voted Conservative yesterday because, at 60, he couldn't imagine voting anything else. But his heart had not been in it. The buggers deserved to lose. Above, where the fish tank had been, Blair swam into Downing Street like a gaudy coy. The volume was low because of the jukebox, but Jack could hear the chanting of the crowds. Party workers, no doubt, bust in to play Joe Public. Toe knee, toe knee, toe knee. How could other countries be expected to take Britain seriously? Now a grinning boy was in charge. Clinton wasn't old either and behaved like an adolescent, screwing everything in sight, but Clinton had gravitas, whereas Blair was as brash as a calisthenics instructor. Toe, knee, toe, knee, toe, knee. Thirty years back, he'd have had to be Antony to enter politics, and the full works, Antony, Charles, Linton, Blair would have been to his advantage. To have a whole nation tony you was carrying informality too far. So that's Jack's take on, uh, on uh, the momentous events overnight. Um, then we come to Nat. Well, as I say, Nat, uh, I don't know whether it's not. I don't think Nat was the person that Maureen mentioned as uh, being the person you most closely identified with. He, but he, because you know Maureen's a proper writer and Nat isn't. Is the truth. Um, but um, I will read a little bit about Nat and then perhaps sit down and have a conversation with you. This is. The, as I say, the, the novel is set on five particular days. I'm making it sound more political than it is because it's, I'm, I'm just concentrating on that first day. The other, <clears throat> the other four days are not momentous in the same way. They're not iconic. One of them is close to the uh, Millennium Night. Um, uh, another is the day that England play Argentina in a vital World Cup match, um, which some of you might remember. Uh, Michael Owen scoring a spectacular goal. Also happened to be the day, and this is where you kind of the research for a novel um, throws up some amazing things. I was partly interested in the football match because of sort of nationalism, patriotism, and so on. And when I went to the newspaper library at Collindale, I suppose I could have done it all online now, but anyway, I did go there. I discovered that that day, <coughs> I think it was the 30th of June, 1998, was also the second day of the 
public inquiry at the Elephanton Castle into the murder of Stephen Lawrence, where the second day on which the five men, who the five suspects, who weren't being charged, it wasn't a trial, but had been invited along to the inquiry, appeared. And if you remember, there was, there were, they were attacked. There were uh, scuffles outside the court. Um, it was, it was quite, there were quite dramatic scenes. And that was that same day. And, and for a novel that was interested as I <coughs> in exploring ideas of nationalism, racism, and, and so forth, that, it was very interesting to find that conjunction. So, as I say, um, I'm only giving you slices of the first day, but let me just give you a bit of gnat. <clears throat> Some people are Sunday painters. Nat was a Friday writer. Mondays to Thursdays he gave to his students and weekends to his family, but Fridays were for him. Attic time, he called it, since that's where he sat, at home, under the eaves, in his own headspace, struggling to preserve something of himself for posterity. Less gifted colleagues used their free days for academic research. Nat was a creator. If only Deborah had been less generous a hostess. The pain behind his eyes reminded him of the last vodka she had poured him, though there were surely other unremembered vodkas after that. The whole electorate must be feeling the same, he thought. A people at one in alcoholic stupor. He felt like shit. As a rule, politics didn't interest him. That's why you're so keen on Tony Blair, his friend Harry taunted him last night. He's not interested in politics either. <laughs> Stuff, Harry. This was history being made. After 18 years, the old blue blood blister had finally burst. As Nat's glass kept filling up, the announcement from drafty sports halls began to merge and the country turned red before his eyes. Even Marcus Fox went, diehard Tory, chairman of the 1922 committee, driven out by a fresh-faced local, out with the old foxes, in with the new. For the rest of his life, Nat would remember exactly what he was doing last night. At any rate, when his current amnesia wore off, he would remember some of it. He stared at the blank screen, reviewing his morning. In the two hours since having the house to himself, he'd done what exactly? Stick the breakfast folds in the dishwasher, make himself tea, take it upstairs, turn on his PC, answer the phone, go down again when the milk float went by, swallow more Nurofen, make himself more tea, go back up to his desk, come down again, sift through the post, in disbelief that it contained only two items addressed to him. The first, an invitation to renew his subscriptions to a magazine whose last eight issues lay unread, indeed unopened, on his attic floor. The other, an electricity bill for £249.39, a figure which, despite its seeming precision, was based on a wild estimate of units consumed, just as the two previous bills had been. Sit at his desk, go for a pee, make coffee, swallow more neurofen. In one respect, the list was reassuring. The word desk appeared several times, which was evidence he'd been making an effort. On the other hand, the word right didn't appear once. He refused to feel downcast. Not to work after a night like last night was unsurprising. The main thing 
was to put yourself there in readiness. It would come. Wilderness Avenue, the new play was called. Newish. He'd been working on it since his agent, now his former agent, had read it in draft and told him to make it more sexy. Sex wasn't Nat's strong point. His, his view, sex should happen off stage or with the lights down or between the lines. He tried to be responsive. But all Stefan had meant was make it sexy commercial. And since he'd not yet found a director, producer, company, venue or agent willing to take on Wilderness Avenue, he continued to tinker with the typescript. Tinkering was his speciality. The predecessors to Wilderness Avenue were Terrace of Unhope, Desperation Way and Lonely Crescent. Nat was nothing if not consistent. He had been tinkering with the same play, composing, recomposing and decomposing it for 11 years. How can you expect to write plays when you're such a narcissist? Libby, his wife, had shouted the other night during a row about childcare. She'd only said it because he was so clearly winning the argument. Besides, in his view, Narcissus was a, an unfairly maligned figure. As he patiently explained to Libby, a writer must protect his headspace, not let, be, let it be invaded by piddling distractions such as taking the girls to dance lessons or putting out the rubbish for the bin men. How was a man supposed to create a masterpiece when he was free to write only on Fridays? Giving up teaching would allow Nat all the time he needed, but giving up teaching would also deprive him of what little he earned. Libby claimed not to see what he was fussing about. Six measly contact hours a week now. What difference would dropping your classes make? At least going to college now and then gets you out of the house. She was being unfair. A class might last only an hour, but the preparation took twice that. And then there were the phone calls, the assessments, the photocopying, the admin, the sessions down the pub. All of it eating into his free time, his headspace. And of course, Libby never understood about creativity, how draining it is on body and mind. A breakthrough was bound to come sooner or later. But there's no doubt his self-esteem had taken some knocks lately. He was overweight to start with, the roly-polyism of a sedentary life, and had begun looking for shoes with long pointy ends, like clown's shoes, so that when he looked down he could see his feet again. <coughs> He had also turned 40, which was unnerving and he couldn't help feeling a mistake. At Oxford he had boasted to friends that he would be famous by 30, notorious by 35 and dead by 40. Where had it all gone wrong? The challenge would come when he was accepted. For the past two decades there had been as much likelihood of that as, labor, of, as of Labour winning an election. But after last night, he felt hopeful that things would change. He didn't personally know Blair, who had been three years ahead of him at Oxford, but they would probably find they had friends in common. Invitations would come for soirees at Downing Street. Grants and prizes would go to struggling men of genius. And Nat would be recognised and acclaimed. Consoled, 
he let his fingers hover over the keyboard. Things could only get better for Nat Raven. <laughs> He's not the horrible one, is he, Maureen? Who's the horrible I, one? I, um, I think I identify with him more than I realized. <laughs> and I think I'm not the only Friday writer in the room, judging from... No, I think anybody who's ever written a word identifies with some of that. I yeah, think. yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it was Libby, uh, and Libby being the first person you heard from, who is a struggling uh, working mother um, and uh, somebody at home not working quite as hard, but she gets quite nasty. Really? Yeah. Don't you remember? She's a heroine Gosh. to me. Really? Okay, <laughs> we'll have to talk about it later. Now, okay. you, you, we talk about, um, you said that you were interested in... Uh, racism and nationalism, but um, one of, as these characters go through the five years, one of the things you start noticing is uh, success. There's a, there's a big division between the characters who do well in this new Blairite world and the ones who don't. Mm. Yeah? And were you, what, did that happen by itself? or? Yeah, uh, well, li li Libby, I suppose, um, does does reasonably well. I mean, she she well, she loses a she loses a partner. Um, yeah. Uh, she loses a marriage, if you like. But professionally, she does quite well because she's in the world of advertising, and that seems to go with this, with um, with the Blairite uh, spirit, if you like. Um, Jack struggles, but I, I became very fond of Jack. This, this is the, biz, the, the sort of rural businessman. Yes, yeah, so, so did I. And, yeah. and in fact, I wasn't so interested in him in the beginning, but. No. Uh, but uh, uh, he changes. He, he changes. He becomes more thoughtful because he's not the you know, because Thatcher's not there anymore. Um, no, I hope he moves beyond the sort of grumpy yeah. slight oh, stereotype does, yeah. at the beginning. And uh, well, I got so fond of him, I was I couldn't let him just fail. I mean, obviously his business is, is up against it. You know, any manufacturing industry in this country is sort of doomed, isn't it? But um, he's up against it. But there are consolations in his life, and um, I couldn't bear to let him be miserable at the end, purely miserable. Um, however, <laughs> however, well, we won't go there. We won't go to the end, yeah. the very end. Yeah, um, yeah and, and Harry, who's the, the, the journalist, who is my way of exploring the racism thing. I mean, Harry's a sort of man in denial about his identity and his, I mean, you know, you don't get many, you did especially didn't in 1997 get many black journalists and, and Harry working on a local newspaper and, and I think, I'm giving this away, but if you start reading this novel, I think you don't necessarily pick up, I hope you don't, that um, Harry is black, but he, 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 that's all part of his, his, uh, the issue with Harry. Uh, he, he, he's, he's touchy and at times paranoid and at times spot on about what's happening around him. And, you know, he does okay too in the end. There's also Anthea. Anthea, yeah. Anthea's a young woman who um, is working as a, as a tree officer at the beginning of the novel. Um, and she's the most unformed. She was the one I found hardest. You know, she's, she's, she's 25 years old and she doesn't know who she is. She's a bit of a chameleon. And I, and I realized after a bit, one of the reasons I was struggling to get to know her was she, she's struggling to get to know herself. That's what it's all about, really, what happens to her. And so she gets involved with Nat, partly because she's young and she doesn't know any better. Um, 
but she has ambitions for herself. One of, the, one of her ambitions is to be a writer. Somebody said to me, you've made all these, quite a few of these people want to be writers and <laughs> none of them end up writing. And what does that say about me and my <laughs> ideas about writing? Now, Anthea in particular has a, a, a bit of a riff or a rant which I was quite tempted to read because I suspect there are one or two people here who've, who um, are doing creative writing here. But she has, uh, she has her doubts about it. She has some difficult experiences with her, um, her ambitions to be a successful yeah. writer and, and, uh, and drops it in favour of something more useful. But they're, they're the, the, the characters who sail on with the times. And then mm. there are quite a few who settle for less, which is, I think, uh, the, well, the human condition at middle age or whatever. Mm. Uh, people, uh, and they, they, by the end, seem, I liked them more than I, I had in the beginning. In the beginning, I thought that they were just lazy or wrong-headed or working for the wrong council, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, <coughs> Jack, who won't settle for it. And uh, the, I won't... The, without giving away the ending, I just, the, the ending of the book completely uh, overturned my idea of the book and what it was about. So did it for you as well? Because I, mean, I, I, I sense this is a book in which the characters are showing their way through, kind of running a fair um, amount of it. Well, I don't know that it completely overturned it. I mean, the, 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 the last day, which is in 2002, so it covers five years, um, I decided I would stop short of Iraq. Uh, this is really the first half of, of the Blair years, 97 to 2002, um, generally seen as you know the, the, the more successful years or whatever before, before that war. Um, I didn't want to, uh, I mean, I felt it requires another novel, that. Um, when I began, I had no idea how it was going to end. I'm quite interested in this question because I noticed when The Guardian recently had one of those little pamphlets on um, helping people with writing, how yeah. to write, the fiction introduction by Robert Harris, he has sort of three rules. Yes. And one of them was never begin a novel until you know the ending. I could, I mean, I could never begin a novel if I did know the ending. Yeah. <laughs> For me, the whole point of writing something is to discover what it is I'm yeah. trying to say. I don't know yeah. it at the beginning. I, I mean, obviously, in terms of a a tightly plotted thriller such as he writes, that advice may be very good sense. But I've been canvassing opinion on this one, Maureen. Do you know the end of? No, I wouldn't. I, if I knew, if I could even describe what the novel was about, I wouldn't be interested in writing it. But often the last draft, I will know yeah, the, by um, then you what's happened. And uh, wasn't I saying that just um, the other minute? Yeah? Okay. Look at my students. I mean, even when it's published and you start to talk about you have to go out and talk about it and uh, you're still finding out I find at that point you know a bit better I mean this book took nine years uh, on and off um, but but when it came out I still didn't know exactly what it was about I know I created characters I know I got various narrative threads but if you said um, what exactly is it saying um, I'm, I'm not sure I still have the answer to that but you were clearly always trying to capture the, the texture of lives and, and all the things that um, you know, make us what we are right now. And the, the way in which politics uh, appears in it, it's, it's not a didactic novel, it's not a polemical mm. novel in any way. It's a, curi it's a novel that, uh, that in which the characters um, find their own way. But they, uh, like you and I and everybody in this room, are listening to the radio all the time, yeah. uh, reading the papers, uh, 
a public, the public world is coming into our lives a that, lot that's and how, leaving. That's, I think that's how we most of us intersect with it. I mean, obviously, if you've got a novel in which one of the characters is a leading politician or whatever, and I suppose that the Alan Hollinghurst novel has, um, which is also, if you like, State of the Nation novel set in Thatcher years, one of the characters is, you know, has a far more involvement with politics than any of mine do. But I think the more typical intersection for most of us is, yes, it's with radio, with uh, with television, with talk round a dinner table about the, the public world. It's, it, um, it's happening at a distance. So to, to describe living through a certain period, it's, it's the sort of the textures of, of domestic and family life. It's, for instance, um, this, you know, the mobile phone gets into this. Email gets into this. For many people, that period since 97 has been that the, the, the existence of those phenomena, email, mobiles, is probably more significant than having a Labour government or, or a new Labour. I mean, that's because that affects you, uh, you know, personally every day in the way that public events don't necessarily. Another kind of related question, uh, there's one question I'll put to one side, which is I was going to ask you about how um, being a poet first uh, influence, has influenced the way that you write both your fiction and your nonfiction. We'll put that to one side. Is that, we're not answering <laughs> not, that? Not, not, not okay. yet. Uh, but uh, you and I both worked in newspapers. Your sense, uh, you're, you're <coughs> just on the cusp there between uh, the you know, everyday private life and those public events. Mm. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering how much you think that working in newspapers, albeit on the literary part of newspapers, still very close to everything else, how it's affected the way you write and perhaps the way that you understand the world you're writing about. Yeah, well, I think it may have had an, it may have had a, an impact. Although, and this isn't answering your poem question, we'll come back to that, but I remember <laughs> one of the first poems I wrote at school was about uh, a little girl who'd been burnt to death in a nightdress. Typical sort of happy stuff that I tend to write about. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was from a new... I remember that, you know, there were a series of terrible burnings of this kind, nightdresses accidentally catching fire and, and, and laws coming in to change, you know, what fabrics could be sold in Woolworths and places. But anyway, it was a newspaper cutting that got me interested in that. And I've always felt that as a poet or a novelist, whatever it is, you can... You can use, you know, public events, mm -hmm. newspaper stories. The, the thing is to find a different language and a different idiom, a different way of looking at it. The Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper goes over ground that to anybody who lived through the period of Peter Sutcliffe, uh, when that was dominated the headlines, they would recognise a lot of what's in the poem, but mm -hmm. they would, I hope, get a slightly different take on it. Similarly with the book on the Bulgers, which had been endlessly reported, of course, those, the murder and, 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 and so on, the boys. Um, but I wrote the book because I felt there were still other things to say and new ways of looking at, at that period of, um, you know, at that, at that story. There was a different way to tell that story. There were new insights you could, that you could offer as a, if you like, uh, through the imagination or through a non-journalistic approach. So, I've, you know, I still feel that is perhaps an option for a writer, and it's certainly one I've 
taken. So you're saying that uh, you ended up in newspapers because, because it was a congenial uh, possibly, place. Possibly. Um, I mean, yes, I've, I had this. I would say the same thing. Actually. I did. A, I mean, I did spent most of my twenties doing a PhD, and at the end of it, it didn't go into academic life, uh -huh. but onto the book pages of a newspaper. I always think that book pages are a bit of a backwater. You're not there at the sort of front of news, but obviously you're surrounded by people who are passionately engaged with day-to-day -day news more than perhaps most of us are. So that will have had an effect, yeah, probably. And how about the other question now? The the other, one, uh, the so long ago, okay. I forgot what it okay. is. I'm like, <laughs> I think, um, I can't remember exactly how you framed it. I started as a poet. Yes, and I, I, I've always, when I look at um, your fiction and your non-fiction, mm. I can see the, the poet's understanding there, the, you know, the way that you understand it structurally. Um, the, the way that you know what to leave out. I mean, I should add that um, Blake's the, the person who taught me how to uh, write in the public domain by just line editing, you know, saying no, no, yes. Maureen no, was okay, doing book okay, reviewing yeah. for The Observer and yeah. Independent on Sunday. But uh, I don't think I, a lot of I can't seriously claim to have taught her everything she knows, but yeah. I did occasionally cut a few words from your... Just a few. Just just a few. So it would fit <laughs> on the page. Um, uh, you know, I began as a poet. I never thought I'd write anything other than poetry, to be honest, apart from reviews and, and that perhaps critical things. Um, but then I had a period where I wasn't writing much poetry. And when my father died um, and I wanted to write about him, well, I felt I hadn't, didn't want to. I had no choice but to, really. Um, what else would I have written about at that time? Um, I had been keeping a, a kind of diary and an account of his last, the last weeks of his life, and I'd also been telling stories about him, and I didn't feel that poetry was the right medium. Uh, I was also very conscious of how many good uh, elegies for parents or uh, loved ones there had been in recent times, Tony Harris and Michael Hoffman, other poets that I read and admired, and I thought, no, I'm going to... I'm going to do something, I'll do a, a, a... Well, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. Was it going to be a novel? Was it going to be a memoir? But it was going to be prose. And in my ignorance, I thought there hadn't been many father-son prose books. Uh, I'd never read Edmund Goss um, and so on. And so I felt, oh, yeah, this is uncharted territory. And uh, so it, it came out as, as prose. And I hadn't written poetry for five years before that book, so I, I suspect some of the poetry got into that, into that book. But you never, um, a lot of people who, who do, do take on this kind of subject would feel under obligation to tell the whole story and to tell it in chronological order. And, and the, 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 I always feel, when I look at the back of that book, that everything comes from the question in the title, yeah. really. And it's very, very true to its purpose, which is why it's... Yes. I mean, I think the title came later, oddly enough, but, but there was a sort of inquiry going on, implicit in it. There was also just the fact that, as I say, I, I, I'd been doing two kinds of writing. I'd been writing, when my father was dying, I was spending a lot of time not with my sort of wife and children in London, but in Yorkshire with him. I'd all sort of run away for his last weeks of his life. And uh, I... So I was back in my old childhood domain and I couldn't sleep at night and I kept this diary recording what had happened that day. Um, 
And I also, after his death, as a sort of form of therapy or whatever, began to write stories where my father had been fully alive and, and where I was trying to keep him alive, if you like. So I got these two different kinds of writing and when I put them together, it, it, the book fell quite naturally into that structure where you move between, you, sh you shuffle backwards and forwards between the present where he is dying and, and you go back in time trying to find him at his most alive. So, so yes, the, the, in a way it does answer that question though, the, the title was a, one of several possible titles oh, and really? it was Bill Buford, the editor at Grant, who said that's the right title. Okay. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Do any of you have any questions? Because I have too many. Go ahead, Claire. I'll repeat your question after you. I had, Sorry. did I read Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl? Yeah. I had already read it to my children. It was deeply in my, <laughs> embedded in my psyche, yeah. Um, and I think, as a, I'm sure at one point Nat, uh, the father, refers to it. Yeah. You can't avoid Roald Dahl, I think, if you have children, really. Reading him getting to know him very well. It's another? Yes? So this is the other titles for When Did You Last See Your Father? Well, um, the only one I can remember uh, was <coughs> that after my father died, I, I discovered a, a letter that he had written to his GP. My father had been a GP himself, and he'd written this letter to the, the current GP in the same practice where my father had been and worked. Um, and he'd, he was sort of essentially re recounting in, in brief, because there wasn't much to report, you know, the history of his health and illness, um, illnesses in the past and saying, uh, and then he said, but now for something completely different. And, um, or, or yes, but now there's a completely different story, uh, which was writing to tell a GP that he'd been diagnosed with, uh, with cancer. And um, so I think that resonated for me quite a lot, a completely different story. But I think Bill Buford quite rightly felt that wasn't so catchy. And When Did You Last See Your Father is, uh, as many people here will know, is a famous painting, 19th century painting by... W.F. Yeams, uh, which uh, people of a certain generation in Britain used to have it hanging often at home or on, in classrooms, and it shows a little boy on a footstool. It's in the days of the Cavaliers and Roundheads, and the boy is being questioned about the uh, whereabouts of his father, um, uh, who's obviously, you know, a politically... Uh, uh, dangerous character who needs to be tracked down by these severe men. And they've, they've, they've obviously lulled him in, they've thrown him a couple of easy questions like, you know, what did he have for breakfast and uh, what do you think of your mum and, and, and when did you last see your father? So the and, the and is very important. It means they've asked him two or three other questions. Um, I mention this partly because uh, he, the, the film, which I know some people here have seen, 
I was pleased that they kept the title and kept the and, but the Americans didn't understand the reason for the and. So in America, it's when did you last see your father, the film. Also, because it's eight words, isn't it? I mean, that's a long title. For, Police. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they, they've cut it to seven. Yeah. How close does the film follow the book? I was thinking of certain particular moments in the North Country myself. The way the, the people were watching the cortege go by, showing their respect. You didn't see it in the Midlands or in the South, did you? But that was a typical North Country feature, yeah. wasn't it? Did you hear yeah. it? Oh, hear that. Yeah. How, film, how close yeah. did you do yeah. the film follow the book um, and the cortege in the North? Yes, oddly enough, um, that scene was shot in Derbyshire for the you know in in no I didn't put that in the book exactly and what I put in the book which was true is that the the, the hearse uh, it was a very frosty day and the hearse got stuck I mean it got you know, it was a comical thing where the as it were the mourners are having to push the hearse out of the ice to to get to the church on time and there were a lot of cars parked down near the, the church, but there weren't people standing in that way. That was a piece of fiction, I suppose. Generally, I thought the film, though shot in Derbyshire rather than Yorkshire, where it should have been shot, uh, was very true to, to the book. Yes, they changed things. They had to change things. But, for instance, the, the book, the film begins with the scene where my father um, jumps a queue of cars uh, that's how the book begins, the film begins, ends in the same way. So I think, and to get the cast that they had and to the screenwriter who I think respected the book, uh, I feel very fortunate. The only disappointing thing is that I got a lot of friends along t to be extras <laughs> and um, you don't get to see them all. So Maureen, who... Um, nobly came to London and gave up a day to be an extra, as did I. Um, Such a sacrifice. Uh, and you might just have caught sight of me if you're looking okay. very hard in the scene where Colin Firth is getting this poetry prize. Um, Maureen, unfortunately, didn't make the final cut. Oh, but, but it was <laughs> so much fun. It was so much, because we were... Um, there was Colin Firth. There, there was the pretend uh, Morrison family, yes? Yeah. And then the real Morrison family was at the next table. Yeah, and, it was a and, bit and bizarre. We were, and, and some of us had been, um, they'd made us, given us silly hair and makeup. Well, and the women were all yes, given, yeah. we didn't. Lavinia was the most unlucky. Yeah, yeah. And there was a joke about my wife and, and, um, and your wife wasn't so happy no. about hearing of this joke for the 18th no. thousandth time. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because in the film, my wife asks to be thanked in his thank you speech, which mine wouldn't do. But uh, I should also say that the, the, real, uh, the real prize was a very modest little poetry prize, and the prize giving took place. You know, it's, lo it's like, I don't know, 30 people standing around drinking cheap wine. Well, if you've seen the film, you know that it's like I've won the book a prize. I mean, it's like, <laughs> It's fantastic. I get to win the Booker, you know. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. um, and that's, you know, that was the sort of pragmatic stuff they do because they said, oh, we can't, we're going to have a part of this scene is going to be shot standing up. So we really need people to be at table. So we better put stuff on the tables. So it better be as if there's a meal being served. And it's rather like, you know, the budget um, 
didn't extend to a, as what, a scene I described in the, the book where we had the family had a skiing trip in Austria. That becomes miniature golf, uh, crazy golf in Brighton. Um, but, you know, this is how... This is when you've got a budget of about three million and you've got six and a half weeks to shoot a film, which is all they had for that, then... Yeah, and then we, uh, nobody was allowed to smoke. Of course, none of us smoke anyway. But do you remember how they, they used to send somebody through with a, uh, a lit cigarette yeah. just so that there would be smoke in the... Thing. Yeah, was, which apparently was, yeah. It, it sort of softens the, the image. The, every single scene, there was this man who would light a cigarette and go <laughs> puffing around. And, uh, yeah. Sorry, I wouldn't have missed it. Um, I'm very glad that I ended up on the cutting room floor as well, but I got to be there. That was great. Any other questions? Yes. Can I just one up? I mean, I, I just one way we just saw the film this afternoon. And I read the book a long time ago, with enormous pleasure when it first came out. And I thought I remembered it very well. But I felt that the film depicted the, the, the boy, the boy of the land, as much more angry with the father mm. than I had read in the book. Yes. Yeah, the fil as, the, as the films show the father-son relationship, particularly the son's feelings towards the father, is much more angry. Yes. But I suppose, you know, you've got a 90-minute drama and you have to create this sense of tension. And so I think... And, I, and perhaps, you know, I watched the film and I realised perhaps I had been angrier with my father than I l I'd allowed myself to, to, to write in the book. What's more, I think that... Jim Broadbent is so <coughs> um, charismatic as my father that um, you kind of you forgive him and the anger seems unjustified. In fact, you know, I find Blake a much less sympathetic character altogether than, than his father. Um, uh, you know, you wonder what, what's he on about? What's he, what, why is he so angry as the film shows him? But, you know, it, it gets that father-son tension, I think. Yes? I was going to ask whether your views of, of your father and your family has changed over, because that was like 10 years ago or 15 years, 10 years ago that you wrote it, whether you've got, um, whether your, your views of your, of your dad has changed in that time. Well, it's funny, I remember um, D.H. Lawrence, um, who uh, after, uh, you know, wrote Sons and Lovers, which is thought to be quite a negative portrayal of Mr. Morell, and later in life, I think he said, although he didn't live to be very old, of course, um, that he thought he'd been unfair to his father, done him an injustice. Um, I, I don't think I could have written a, any book other than the book that I wrote in the year after his death, and I don't think it's so angry with him. I think it, the, the affection and the love, I hope, are, are there. Um, I'm conscious of the film doing him a very slight injustice in that, um, for instance, in the scene we, uh, we mentioned, the prize-giving, my father would, wouldn't have been undermining that day. He would have been, you know, a proud dad. He was. He was there. And he, 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 he didn't try and steal the show or mock the, tro the plastic trophy. Um, but <clears throat> you sort of feel, well, there's a larger truth here about fathers and sons. And fathers do very often undermine sons or refuse to accept um, their achievements. Um, um, 
uh, you know, that, that's, that's the Johnny Cash story, isn't it? And that, that Johnny Cash film, Walk the Line, is very much the father's refusal to acknowledge the son's gift. Um, so it's a case of, if you like, a, a, a Morrison family, a local Morrison family truth being sacrificed for a larger one. But I hope my dad would accept that, but that's the one bit of uh, injustice, perhaps. I, I do remember a line, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, in, from uh, that book, in which you say that you chose to write poetry so that you could write something that your father couldn't understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so, so, so it's a two-way thing. It was, uh, it was to escape him. I thought, yeah, you know, he, he could pursue me with most things, but he won't read poetry. No. No. And even if he tried, he wouldn't be able to understand it. No. 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 Wasn't, a great, okay. wasn't a great reader, yeah. my dad. Um, yes? Uh, perish the thought. Um, <laughs> I think there's an element of that in most, most writers that I know, um, the procrastinating and so on. Um, well, no, I've been trying to write a novel which, unlike this one, which is sort of 500 pages, it would be quite tight and set, and, and not five years, but set over the events of a weekend. Um, so I've finished a, a couple of drafts of that. Um, and I'll just keep working on it till it's till it's there. And what are the, what are the tensions? What, what are the different problems when you're when you let yourself, having written a very very big novel, and then you focus on a weekend? Mm. It should be easier, but then it isn't, is it? No. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I thought, well, I I can't have as many characters, and I can't have as many days, and. Guess what happens? Somehow it's now expanding. <laughs> but it is only four days. But then I see, well, actually, that's a bit like this, which is five days. And there are only going to be four characters, but then suddenly more come in. And also, change happens in a different way. Hmm. Yeah? It's yeah, and you can't avoid some, a certain amount of backstory. And, you know, it can't be confined to that weekend. People are coming from somewhere, and you have to fill that in. So, yes, even the small scale thing ends up being bigger than you than you hoped or intended. Yeah, so there's no getting away from that headache. No, no Friday morning not headache. The, not the time yeah. found. Yeah. Okay, but if you if you do find one, you'll let I'll me know. I'll tell you. Okay. Is there any other questions? Yes, George. Uh, I remember reading an article you wrote about uh, how you send your manuscripts to a, is it a Swedish editor? It's not that, an article you did about lack of editing. Well, um, I did write a piece. Uh, piece about editors and how, how I value editors. I mean, my, edit, my editor at Grant had thought up the title or chose the title for the book. He was the one who said, turn it around. Instead of beginning with your father in his hospital bed and then we visit him jumping a queue of cars, why don't you just switch those, switch it? So it's very simple to switch. But you begin with the living man and move on to the dying man and you've, you've already got the audience. Anyway, the point I'm making is that I've found editors over the years very helpful and useful, and I believe in editors, I believe in workshops, I believe in the help that you can get from your peers. Um, and I feel the sort of the commercial pressures or time pressures on in publishing houses now that um, that kind of careful editing, um, it's very difficult for it to take place. Uh, so I don't actually send my um, 
my, my, I think I was describing somebody else, a, a British writer who, who relies on a Swedish or, or Belgian editor to, for a first response to, to what he writes. But I have found that, for instance, the, uh, my Dutch translator will pick up all sorts of things that uh, have been missed uh, when the book is already here, published here and possibly in the States. We'll, we'll pick up mistakes I've made. And, you know, I, I think it's immensely valuable if you're lucky enough to have somebody who's taking that kind of, paying that kind of attention to the text. Uh, and, and that's what editors used to do. One of the reasons Maureen and I mentioned Pat Kavanagh is that she, without being one of those agents that um, usurped editors and took over the, the writing uh, of a book, um, and that's what I think happened in the 80s and 90s, the agents began to take over some of those roles that editors used to have. But Pat wasn't like that, but she did, you know, give you quietly useful sort of feedback. And I think, you know, there's, we do tend to see writers as isolated individuals. They do it on their own, but they don't. You know, they depend so much on other people. And uh, that was part of the point I was trying to make in that piece. Yes. <coughs> Way. And the only writing I've ever done has been at university writing essays, which had to, were highly structured and definite conclusions that I knew were going to be there. And I find it very interesting that you say that you don't you don't know how the book is going to end when you begin it. Mm. I, I find that fascinating. And the fact that even when it's been published, you still don't fully understand it and what's happened in it. Would you say that it's a way of well, it depends what the book is. I mean, I think maybe the, the, the family, the two family memoirs that I wrote, uh, there's a degree of self-discovery going on. I think with a novel, n not in the same way, but you are trying to articulate ideas that are not perhaps fully formed. You're not absolutely sure what it is you're saying. Uh, but you can still feel it's working. You know, it's, you've got it right. The, you've solved problems, even if you haven't this utter, complete understanding of, of what's going on in it. But I find with essays, I, you surprise me that you, <laughs> that you, you know, you've got your conclusions before you start. Because I find essays and reviews, I also approach them as a voyage of discovery. I know roughly what I want to say, but until yeah. I've said it, um, I, 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 mm. <laughs> I think we have time for. Another question, if there's any hand up there, go ahead. Would you say you respond to stimulus, or would you say you respond to an issue? Because I've known some people say, oh, I saw this couple on the bus, and that really inspired me, and then they'll come off, blah, blah, blah. And some people say, oh, there's this fabulous issue in the newspaper, and they take it from there, or stress the issue, sort of thing. Um, well, it varies um, from, book, from book to book. Sorry, that's a disappointing answer, but... Uh, I mean, certainly in a couple of cases, I have written about public events and it has been issues that have got me going. But yeah, quite often it will be a chance thing. The fox on the lawn or whatever it is that, that stirs your imagination and, and gets you started. Not an issue at all. Unless it's a girl in a burning nightgown. Yes? That was a news story. Was but a <laughs> I suppose it was, was, it was exploring other things, yeah. But you, but you can't predict it. You can't predict what's going to... No, and you can't... 
I don't think you can sit down and say, I am going to write about some such and such, unless it's, you know, you've, you've engaged it in some deep way, even if it's an issue, it must have been bothering you for some time, you must have been brooding on it, it must have been, must have been there. It must mean something to you, I mean, there's so many issues out there, but there are certain ones that will have a resonance for you and a personal meaning, and will nag away until you, you have to, to write about them, I guess. I think, unless there's a burning question, no burning questions, very good people. Um, <laughs> thanks you, thank you so much, Blake, for coming here thank this evening. Uh, Blake, uh, will you'll be able to sign? You'll yeah. sit around here for a little while. And, uh, and before we uh, finish, there's something else. Yeah. Yes? Blake, I, I need to ask your permission to make a thank you speech to somebody very special in the audience. So, okay, if I can know. Of course. How disappointing. There's trains, all sorts of things. And uh, I know how hard this is, because when I first came to work, I organised these events. And I was delighted when Emma McCormack took over. It, took, it removed days and days and days of work from my week, and ended up with days and days of hers. Now, I first got to know her when she came here as an undergraduate in the first, in the first year at Warwick. And I was at Warwick too, it was in my early stages. And I stood up in front of the entire first year and I said to them on their first day that I thought it was the obligation of every undergraduate taking English to come to Writers at Warwick events, thinking that I'd just captured 140 of them at one go. 139 didn't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> one did, <coughs> Emma McCormack, who then proceeded to come to every single event for three years. So, she then took on this job and became house manager of the Arts Centre, and it's been a fabulous job for all of us. So, on behalf of all the writers who have been here, and I think in her term, it's been about 250 to 300 writers in readings and conferences and debates and discussions on censorship and all sorts of things. To all the audiences who, who number tens of thousands, to all the students who experience these wonderful events, uh, from the writing program itself, with the help that she's giving to us, I just ask her to come down here and accept a small token of our thanks and a round of applause from all of us. And now I'm going to ask you to give another round of applause for Blake. Thank you very much for coming. This was recorded as part of the Writers at Warwick series at Warwick Arts Centre. 
For more information, please visit www.warwickartscentre.co.uk.